And I'll begin reading there, and then I'll go down through chapter 7, verse 6. Would you please stand, if you're willing and able, for the reading of God's Word. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not as a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. Let's pray together. Father, I readily admit that any topic on sexuality that addresses hot-button issues of our day leaves many people unsatisfied when they hear a message on it. But I pray that whatever deficiencies I have as a preacher, you would more than overcome by the power of your Holy Spirit. That you would so shape and contour our hearts that we would look more and more like the beautiful bride that you long for us to be, to extend your glory in every facet of our lives, especially in aspects so deeply personal. Would you challenge us and shape us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sexuality, obviously, is a very timely topic. 
Pastors and Christian counselors will tell you that children more and more are being exposed to sexual images at a younger age. More and more teenagers are coming out of the closet. More and more couples are, even within marriage, having sexual struggles. One of the reasons why um, we want to talk about this topic is because you've asked me to speak on it. And our hot topics, the vast majority of the submissions were about Christian sexuality. And they were not only about um, homosexuality, by the way. They were also about uh, sexuality within marriage. But there's a danger when you talk about Christian sexuality. There's a danger when you talk about homosexuality. There's a danger when you talk about things that are so deeply personal to who we are as God's divine image. And here's the danger. The danger is that it awakens in us a kind of moral superiority. That some of you will hear me and you will think that I am talking at you. I'm not. I don't have any individual person in mind. In fact, I'm not looking at any of you. I'm just trying to explain Paul's argument. I'm not talking at you. The church is not talking at you. The church doesn't hate you. We're just trying to be faithful to what Scripture teaches. There are some of you who are going to feel shame. You're going to feel guilt. We're not in the business of using guilt to change behavior. We're in the business of using the gospel to do that. There's also a group of us here who are going to have an awakened sense of um, uh, superiority because we love to hear sermons about other people. And we love to look down our nose at other people who are struggling with a particular sin that we may find particularly um, uh, heinous. But the truth of the matter is, every person in this room, including myself, needs to hear this sermon. The gospel is for us all in every area of our life. And so please remember the words of the great author Herman Melville when he wrote in Moby Dick, Heaven have mercy on us all, if we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need, uh, in need of mending, both Presbyterians and pagans alike. All right? So here we go. Check your sense of moral superiority because you know what this sermon is really for? My heart in preaching this sermon is not only for you, but it perhaps even more so is for our children. I mean, I, we'll do the best we can with the people in this room, right? But we're trying to lay a groundwork for the children who are rising up in a culture that is more and more confused about the nature of what is right sexually. So my concern is not only for the people in this room, but it's for all those kids that are in Trinity Kids. As parents, we are raising our children up in a world of such moral ambiguity. How do we shepherd them? How do we know? And so therefore, if we're going to talk about Christian sexuality, we have to address the fact that some of us live in Oklahoma, and we are so grateful that we don't live in Los Angeles or New York because things are really bad there. That's not true. They're really bad everywhere. And the only difference between living on the coasts, quite frankly, is not the normalization of aberrant sexual activity, but it's the rate of normalization. For example, um, like, children are coming into um, uh, pornography at a younger and younger age. Studies have begun to show this. And it is becoming... Uh, uh, part and parcel of almost every Netflix series that you watch, that somewhere along the series they will introduce a character who pushes social boundaries. 
And they're put there very intentionally. And sometimes they're even redacted into classical literature where there was no such uh, experience in the original character storyline whatsoever. Um, in Old Dominion College, for example, uh, you may have read about this in the news several years ago, right? in one of the fraternity houses, as moms and dads brought their children to college, there was in the fraternity house, right there by the opening entrance of the school, a big bed sheet, and on it was written, Dads, drop your freshman daughters off here, with a big arrow down to the door. One, uh, one college student wrote, a lot of people come into college expecting to meet their husband or wife. And once you get there, you realize that it's really not that easy to do. Like, finding love isn't that easy. Sex is probably a lot easier. Some of us are tempted when we hear things about sexuality to, to try to turn back the clock and to go back to the 1950s. You ask an African-American if they want to go back to the 1950s. It wasn't all hayrides and sunsets for many people in the 1950s. So the solution for us, parents, is not to try to turn the clock back to some wonder year of the past. As Christians, we are called to take God's Word and apply it in our context now and to be so adept at doing so that we're not, we don't walk in fear, but we engage these conversations. And so we're going to do that today. And the way we're going to do that is not by calling out one particular sin, but it's by teaching what the Bible views about Christian sexuality. This sermon is not for your um, cohabitating neighbor. It is not for your gay friend. It is not for the other person. This sermon is for you. This sermon is for me. And so please hear it with those ears. And please, let's humbly, humbly walk into this and to look at 1 Corinthians, knowing that the Holy Spirit intends this to be for you not the person to your right or left. Are you with me? Okay. So, what is the Christian view of sexuality? Sex is to be enjoyed within marriage to extend God's glory. If you're a note taker, sex is to be enjoyed within marriage. It is to be enjoyed within marriage to extend God's glory. Let me explain the essential biblical ethic is this, that sexual love is to be enjoyed in the context of a total commitment, personal and legal, between a man and a woman to strengthen the bonds of husband and wife, to extend God's glory to the world, and, Lord willing, to produce children. And when sex operates outside of that context, when it operates in any other context, it eats up the relationship it devours the relationship. Sex in any other context of total commitment, both personal and legal, the partners will devour each other. But sex in marriage, which the Bible defines as husband and wife, male and female, binds the two together to become one, one new family unit, one new family, one flesh. And if we're going to understand this, let's go into 1 Corinthians and let's look at the two predominant views that Paul here addresses. There were primarily two predominant views of sexuality in the early church. The one was the Platonists. The Platonists were those who thought that sex was dirty, that the spirit was good, the body was bad. 
because sex is physical. It's dirty. It should be avoided. What spirituality is, is somehow becoming uh, distant from the body, distant from the material world, and in the heights of heaven, thinking about the spiritual. So prayer, meditation, these are the things that they valued. But sex was primarily viewed as something that was negative. The Platonists were those who uh, looked, therefore, down their noses at people who practiced sex. And on the other side, you had um, the religious cults or the mystery religions of the ancient Near, uh, Near East. And those were the ones who said, sex, sex is it dirty? It's just an appetite. When, when, uh, when you, when you, uh, when you uh, want to have food, you have lunch. And when you want to have sex, you have sex. It's just an appetite. You don't do it too much, but you do do it. It was just an appetite to be satiated. So you've got mystery religions. You've got the Platonists, and you've got the mystery religions. You've got the, um, as Tim Keller calls it, you've got the prudes, and you've got the pagans, right? And you, you still have those two views of sex in general today. There are some Christian circles who do not talk about sex very much because it's so personal because it's so messy pastorally, they don't talk about it very much. And if they do, they tend to use the vehicle of guilt to get you to change your behavior. You know, these would become the, the, these would be the fundamentalist uh, churches, some would say. And then there are other Christian circles that don't talk about sex because, quite frankly, they've completely adopted the world's ethic of sexuality. And they don't talk about it because there's nothing really to talk about. You're doing fine. And we still have those very same views today. You've got the people who act like Platonists who don't talk about it. Sex is dirty. And then you've got people who act like the, the uh, mystery religions where we, we don't need to talk about it because it's just an appetite. You just indulge. You just do it. What's the Christian view? Look at chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. Would you lower your eyes and look there with me? Contrary to the Platonists, God not only approves of sex. It says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Contrary to the Platonist, God not only approves of sex, but he says, go at it within the context of marriage. All the husbands I can see are frightened in that verse. But contrary to the mystery religions, he says that, listen, your desires are not good templates standards to determine what is right and what is wrong. Sometimes we think about sex, we think about, um, you know, in Scripture, in the church, we think about, um, you know, the Puritans who were just these, you know, the Puritans who were just so, you know, so stodgy and always talking about prayer and using words that we don't understand today. And, you know, actually the Puritans were incredibly vivid when they talked about sex from the pulpit. In fact, there is a, there's, a, um, uh, there's a Yale scholar who passed away five or six years ago, and um, his name was Edmund uh, Morgan, and he compiled back in the 1950s the sermons that the Puritans wrote on sexuality, and he compiled them into an article, and he gave them to the Yale Review to publish, and the editors of the Yale Review in, 19, in the 1950s refused to publish it because it was so explicit. And the Puritans used to say that if a, if a husband or a wife got in an argument together and what the husband or the wife came to the elders of that church and they said that you know, my husband has said to me, 
um, or my wife has said to me, which is usually the case, my wife says to me that, that, uh, that we can no longer have sex because of this argument. And, and the wife would say, you're darn right, buddy. We're not having sex because of this argument. You're cut off, maybe, maybe even forever. And, and they would come to the elders of the church in the Puritan church. And the Puritan elders would actually exhort the other spouse in 1 Corinthians 7 to say you cannot deny your spouse the conjugal rights. Now, I'm not talking about sexual abuse, by the way, friends. It's an argument in this illustration. You see the point. You can't go to your husband and wife and say, well, because, um, because I don't like what you've done or, or because of this or that, you know, therefore sex is off, out of, uh, out of uh, uh, off limits for us. No, Scripture actually, contrary to the Platonists, it commands that husbands and wife have sex. There's also um, an interesting um, aspect of sexuality where um, uh, uh, most people in society, uh, contrary to um, perhaps what they've grown up hearing in the church, find that sex is just like amazingly uh, uh, free for them. But I just want to push back on that to say that God's Word is not given to us to restrain our freedom. It's given to help us maintain our freedom. God's Word is not given to be a killjoy. It's been to help, it's been to help us have the most incredible sex life you can possibly have within the context of how God has defined marriage between a man and a woman. The Bible doesn't say that sex is dirty. The Bible, the Bible condemns sex outside of marriage between a man, a man and a woman, not because it's dirty, but because it's so good. That's the basic biblical ethic. And there are three purposes, biblically, of sex. First, it's goodness. Back in Genesis chapter 2, after God created uh, Adam and Eve, God says, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. And now out of the ground, he formed every beast of the field. And uh, Adam, you know, you know the text, name them. And then he said, but for Adam, no helper, no suitable helper was found. So God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And he took one of his ribs and he closed it up with flesh. And out of the rib, the Lord had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man sung at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. God has given sex as a good thing to be enjoyed within marriage. And therefore, it is crucial to see why a covenant is so important for two people who engage in sex. Because what a covenant does is it's a legal binding document. People say, oh, you don't need to, you know, to be casually say, we don't need a legal binding document. We're married in God's eyes. We don't need no, you do. You do because what you're saying Without that, as you're saying, you know, I love you, but, but I want to keep my options open. A marriage, a legal covenant of marriage basically says to that person, I'm exclusively and totally, personally and legally committed to you. On the other hand, people may say, well, you don't need, listen, you don't need, you don't need that. I mean, I'm personally totally committed to you. I don't need a, a marriage license to do that. No, you're being too naive about how hard marriage is, frankly. Don't be so naive. 
You do need that bond of covenant, public, personal, legal, to remind you of how permanent marriage really is, because marriage is hard, isn't it? That's why John Cox is coming to us in, in two months. It's hard. And so, we need to be people who say, um, yes, sex is good. And when it says that the two shall become one flesh, Paul elaborates on this idea in Ephesians chapter 5. He talks about the roles of husband and wife. You just have to put them next to each other to see that they're not, they're not identical, right? They're equal, but not equivalent. In other words, they have complementary roles because it takes husband and wife to produce children. It takes husband and wife to become one flesh. It takes husband and wife to be able to extend God's glory in the way that he created us to extend his glory. And when God says, for example, that they become one flesh, there's a part in Joel where he says, I will pour, I will pour my spirit out on all flesh. It doesn't mean that, that he pours his spirit out on all, peop- I mean, all uh, like bodies. He pours his spirit on all people. So when husband and wife come together, they become almost a new person. So that husbands, you cannot think about your life after your marriage without thinking about your wife. And wife, you cannot think about your life without thinking about your husband. You become almost one new person, the Bible says. It's like when you make chocolate chip cookies. You know, you knead those chocolate chips into the dough and you bake it. If you, you can still pick those chocolate chips out. But in marriage, God says it's like you have two completely different chemical uh, molecules that come together. You can ask Paul for an example as the chemist in residence. You, you have two different chemical structures that come together. And when they come together, they make a compound that does not allow you to distinguish their previous components from one another. They become one new thing, one new person. That's what it's like to become one flesh, which quite frankly is why for many of you it is so hard and so painful when you've had sex with somebody outside of marriage, maybe before you were married, and you break up. Because when you have sex with somebody as a personal union, you're joining together. It's also, by the way, why when you're engaged, the reverse is true. That you're emotionally getting closer together, but you can't yet become close physically. And it creates this burning tension that's going to continue to exist until your wedding night. That's why a lot of us are for really short engagements. So the two become one flesh, and that is something that is not dirty. It's beautiful, and it's good. So the number one reason is that the Bible doesn't say sex outside of marriage is a sin because it's dirty, but because it's so good. It's a bond of marital commitment and unity. Second, generations. In Genesis 1, verse 28, it says, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. God gives us the ability to procreate, to increase in number. It's a reflection of his own life giving a generous nature. Bringing babies into the world is part of the outworking in marriage of the creative love of God and husband and wife together as his image. And yes, there are some couples who, um, who can't have children. There are, and that's true. And that's why, frankly, our view as Protestants is different than the Roman Catholic view, isn't it? Because the purpose of sex is not just procreation, which the Roman Catholic Church officially teaches. 
We actually have three views of sex. The first I mentioned, the second I, or the third I will in just a minute. Because pa- parents who can't have children can still enjoy sex. Why? Because it's good and it binds them together. It's the marital bond, which is why when sometimes you get in arguments together, the way that that argument is actually sealed over is by husband and wife having sex together. But we're called to also produce children. Someone once said that I believe marriage is not just a bond, but a sacred bond between a man and a woman. It is the fundamental bedrock principle that exists between a man and a woman, going back into the midst of history as one of the founding foundational institutions of history and humanity and civilization, and that its primary principal role during those millennia has been the raising and socializing of children for the society into which they are to become adults. Who said that? Hillary Clinton. Why? Because everybody in 2004 realized that the purpose of sex was, number one, it was good, and number two, it was to beget children. And the point of me bringing that up is to say that views change, sometimes very rapidly, don't they? The popular sentiment of marriage for millennia has been it was a bond for husband and wife to grow closer together and... It was also to help produce children. It was necessary to do so. For the raising and socializing of children for the society into which they are to become adults. Now, let me give you the third reason. Third is glory. Romans 7, in the passage that um, Lydia read for us earlier, Romans 7, 1 to 5 says, just as a wife bears the fruit of her husband through her body for the world, so also we bear fruit for God. Paul pulls sex as an analogy to talk about our relationship with the Lord. Just as a husband and a wife bear fruit in a child, so also we through our obedience and our service to God, our repentance, our practicing of faith, and what God has told us to do as his people, we bear fruit for God. Friends, quite frankly, that, that is an image that is so vivid that we wouldn't even dare talk about that if it weren't explicitly written in the Bible. And he even, he even goes and, and, and hints at it here when he talks about, um, uh, uh, when Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one in spirit with him. God has given us sex because it's a good gift to bond husband and wife. He's given us sex to procreate and have children. And also he's given us sex because it's an analog of Christ and his ravishing love for his church, of our union with Christ, and a picture of what it's going to be like in the New Jerusalem. Because even the most incredible sexual experience a husband and wife have had in the context of marriage, it is but a dim echo of what it's going to be like when you see your Savior face to face, when he wraps his arms around you and he sings over you his love. But a dim echo. And so God gives us sex because it's glorious, and it's the means through which we are to extend his glory in a very real sense to remind you that we are not just made for this world, but we also are made for another. It's a picture of what Christ and his church are going to be united in complete unity for all eternity. Now, 
Um, it also reminds us, frankly, when you think about uh, Romans chapter 7, that the best um, um, experience um, in, in um, any act of service is always not the act of, uh, what am I trying to say? Basically, your job as husbands is to be able to serve your wife. And husbands, that's your calling. Wives, your job is to serve your husbands. And that's your calling. That's what Paul says. He says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Don't deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. In other words, the way that you should view sex is not in getting, it's in giving. Christian married couples, please hear me. You exist to be a picture of Christ's sacrificial love to his bride, the church, husbands. And wives, you exist to be able to not get, but give to your husband, and vice versa. And when that happens, you begin to have a healthy sexual life together, and you become incredibly tight. You become, your bonds are even more fiercely connected. You extend God's glory in beautiful ways, and Lord willing, you produce children in the world. You get the point? Get the point? Biblical ethic of sexuality is that God has created us to enjoy sex within marriage, male and female, to extend his glory. Sex is good. Sex is for procreation. And sex isn't just good, it's great. It's glorious. It's divine. And so the Bible doesn't condemn sex outside of marriage because it's dirty, but because it's so amazing. Now, let me talk frankly to those of you who are struggling. And I'm not just talking to people who are struggling with same-sex attraction or people who are struggling um, uh, with homosexual tendencies. I'm talking to everybody. Some people will say, well, you know, 10% of the population um, is, uh, is same-sex attracted. Um, they would call themselves, perhaps some choose to call themselves gay. Um, and um, therefore, uh, what do we do with, with, uh, with uh, those people in the church? Well, let me be very, very careful. Um, first of all, the t you can't determine morality based on statistics. It's never a good way to determine morality, okay? This is going to sound harsh. I'm just going to say it. But 51% of people in Germany when Adolf Hitler reigned weren't right. Statistics has never been a good way to judge morality. The doctrine of total depravity is very simple, that, that if sin were blue, you'd be blue all over. It affects everything about us. And so some people will say, well, those of us who, you know, may have uh, sexual uh, temptation toward, toward the same gender um, are, uh, are therefore justified in so doing. But uh, let me, let me um, push on it just a little bit more. Same-sex attraction is learned. Let me explain what I mean. It is learned. But something that is learned does not mean it's voluntary. Right? You learned English, but did you volunteer for it? No, of course not. You learned it. 
And it was very natural to you because your parents taught it to you. And people who struggle with same-sex attraction, they don't know why they're struggling with same-sex attraction. But they do. It, they may not feel like they volunteered for it. And so you say, well, you just chose it. Did you choose English? Be careful with people who say they're same-sex attracted because, listen, you, it's very hard for them to, to hear Christians say, well, you just chose it. Just unchoose it. There's no doubt that if you struggle with same-sex attraction, that it is possible to be changed. Paul assumes that here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says that as such, verse 11 of chapter 6, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And some people will say, well, listen, I, I, can't, I can't be changed. I didn't, I, I didn't volunteer for this. Yeah, but you learned it. And the Bible says that you can't unlearn it. Just like I have to learn a lot of, the Bible is not picking out homosexuality or same-sex attraction. And the Bible actually doesn't say a ton about it. It has far more to say about greed. And heterosexual sin is just as, maybe, frankly, more grievous in our society than homosexual sin. So we're not picking at you at all. So you can lower your sabers, because I know when I talk about it, it makes you nervous. We're just trying to be honest about the dynamics that are going on in your heart. And you say, well, listen, I can't, I can't, I can't unlearn that. The Bible says that it assumes that you can. Just like it assumes that any sin that you're struggling with, you can be freed from by the power of the Holy Spirit over time. Sometimes gradually, sometimes relatively soon, sometimes you're going to struggle with it your entire life. And those of you who are struggling with same-sex attraction, and this group is way too big for us to assume that nobody is, then there's a great book written by a man named Sam Alberry, who is an Anglican uh, uh, pastor in the UK, who he himself is same-sex attracted and has chosen a life of celibacy. And he wrote a great little book called Is God Anti-Gay? And I, I commend it to you. Every one of us, I commend It's a great read. And... Um, one of, the, um, one of the things that sometimes people will say is, um, well, this is a part of my life that, um, that I can't change. I can't change. Really? You can't change it? Yes, I mean, I, I, was, I, was, uh, I, was, I, I, I seem to have been born this way, and I, I can't change it. Well, let me just push on you a little bit and say that I think you're arguing for too much. You're arguing too much when you say that because you don't say that about any other area of your life. When you were overweight, you worked out and you got your weight down. When your cholesterol was too high, you went after that. Whenever you, uh, you, made, you had a behavior that made your friends upset with you and isolated you socially, you changed that about yourself. But this, why this? Why is this the thing that you say you can't change? If you're going to argue that, well, then why is, you shouldn't be able to change anything about your life. Honestly. Where do you draw those lines? And the Bible says that there is incredible hope and healing for anybody who struggles with same-sex attraction. Not because the Bible isolates that sin as something that is more pernicious than other sins, but the Bible gives hope to everybody who struggles with sin, of which that is just one of many. Are you with me? And so therefore, there will be people in our church who struggle with same-sex attraction. 
There will be. And that is a good thing because they are struggling with same-sex attraction. And the temptation, right, is not itself sin. But moving from saying that I struggle with same-sex attraction to saying that my chief identity is one who is same-sex attracted or gay, that therefore becomes sin because it's replacing a fundamental identity you have in Christ with anything else. Just like it's saying my fundamental identity is I live in this neighborhood or my fundamental identity is I have this career or I do this. Our fundamental identities are always in Christ if you're a Christian. And if that's true, then nothing is off limits. I mean, you can never say, you can never say to the Lord, Lord, I want you to, like, when I, when I pray, I want to feel your nearness. Lord, when, when I go to church, I really want to feel you speaking to me. Lord, when, I, when I'm in a, having a really difficult week, I want, to, I want to know that you're there, that your fatherly affection is over me. But I don't want to give you all my life because I'm going to keep this. I mean, if we said that to the Lord, he would say, no way. And if somebody said to you, hey, like, I want to I enjoy sex in our relationship, but, uh, but, but I want to feel your nearness, and I want to know that you're close, but, but um, you know what? Um, I want to keep my options open. We would say, no way. So why should we expect the Lord to be any different? He has every bit of our life, all of us. Contrary to Plato, sex is great. And contrary to the mystery religions, our desires are just frankly not safe guides for the expression of sexuality. On the one hand, sex is wonderful and glorious. And on the other hand, sexual desires are no safe guide for our self-expression. Now, what does this teach us? It teaches us something very fundamental about the nature of sin and grace. A deep grasp of the biblical view of sexuality will show us the complete pervasiveness of sin in our lives and culture, inside the church and outside the church. It is impossible to divide the world between sinners and good people. Jesus in Luke 11 called his own disciples evil. We learn from the Bible that sin is primarily the desire, the heart desire of every person to be his or her own Lord and Savior. And this is something that everyone is doing all the time. And people who deny God's moral law do that overtly. But some people who try to keep God's moral law, especially within the church, do so in a way to get him to love them more. They're doing it covertly. But each of us are trying to become our own Savior to try to be saved outside of the righteousness of another. And so, the ground motive of sin plays itself out in every single person's life so that we can't have any kind of moral superiority over others. The Christian church ought to be the most humble place in the world. We ought to be the safest place for people to come and struggle over sin and to have hard conversations about it. And the Bible also shows us that no particular act separates us from God's love. Some people might say to me, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a practicing, um, or I'm, I'm a practicing um, gay man or woman. Uh, does that mean God is going to send me to hell? And when people ask me that, I always want to say, God doesn't send people to hell based upon 
one particular sin, or we would all be goners. The reason people are sent to hell or gladly go there because of their own desires is because they don't believe that they're proud, too proud to admit that they need the help of another person. It's like the only, you know, if you're in, a, you're in an ocean and somebody throws you a lifeboat, the only reason you drown is because you refused to admit that you needed the help and grabbed it. So, people aren't saved because they're better people than others. It's all by grace. And a biblical doctrine of sin leads us away from a kind of exclusivity or a kind of moral superiority, and it humbles all of us. Are you with me? Now, secondly, whenever you mention sin in public about any issue, you're going to be misunderstood. A deep grasp of a biblical doctrine of sin means that you will be misunderstood whenever you talk about an issue publicly. So the gospel message tells us that everybody is saved by, uh, by work, but it's not our own work. It's the work of Christ. But even most people in the church believe that you're still saved because of what you've done. You're saved because you lived a good life and you avoided sin. And therefore, when they hear a Christian call something sin, they think, well, I've avoided that, and therefore, they're bad, and I'm good. And those people who should be shunned, and they should be excluded, because I, the one who doesn't do that sin, should be welcomed. And there are people that God condemns because of that behavior, but I'm accepted because I don't do that behavior. It subtly gets into the Kool-Aid of the church, and we begin to drink it, and we begin to divide the church into saints and sinners based upon our own preferences for what sins we do and do not like and what becomes culturally appropriate in the time in which you live. I know the hour is long, but please stay with me. And so therefore, it's important that we try as much as possible as Christians when you make public statements, to talk about sin in a biblical way rather than talk about it only in terms of particular sins because those are going to be misunderstood. Because the entire culture, when they hear that, thinks basically that if you're good, good things happen to you. If you're bad, bad things will happen to you. And so it is true that if you, just like Paul says, practice sexual immorality, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is a willful distancing of yourself from God to say, I am my own God. Not because of the act, but because I determine what is worth it and what isn't. I do not believe that you're good, God, and so I will find goodness on my own. That is what is antithetical to the gospel, not the acts of sin themselves. But when you say things publicly, they're, they're going to be radically misunderstood, which is why for us as Christians, you have to stand back on your justification again and again and again. To say that when somebody says to you, um, uh, you know, listen, I'm struggling with this sin, you say, oh, brother and sister, I'm so glad that you shared that with me. And you listen to them. When somebody confesses to you any particular sin, your response shouldn't be, whew, man, I'm so sorry. That's gross. Your response should be, thank you for sharing that. Tell me more about how you struggled with it. And you listen. That doesn't make us soft. It actually makes us gospel-driven. 
because we're trying to drive people to understand that it is faith in Christ. It is a righteousness that is not our own, that is our, underst- that is our key, central, core identity. Now, if you're struggling or if you're confused um, about gender or sexuality, then I want you to know that the church must be a place for those who uh, talk about sexuality and where sec- sexual ethics is not um, excluded as topics of conversation. Have them sensi- uh, sensitively, yes, but have them nevertheless. We have to be a haven for people who struggle with all kinds of sin. Why did God give to us the gift of sex within marriage between a man and a woman? Because it's good. It bonds husband and wife together. It produces generations of children who also extend to his glory. And it is an analog of Christ's love to his church. Sex within marriage is not only good, but it's so great. And husbands and wives, you should talk about your sex life together. You should talk about it together, to grow in your relationship together. And if there are tensions there, discuss those. Because nothing is off limits as Christians. And just as you talk to each other as husbands and wives, so also it is an analog for how we are to be able to talk about things with our Savior, who came for us and died for us, and so um, refused to live for himself, that he was perfect in every way. And his greatest joy, for the joy set before him, Paul says, he died because he is a self-giving God. So also, husbands, you ought to be that towards your brides. So also, wives, you ought to be that for your husbands. And so also, those who struggle with sexual temptations, you ought to struggle knowing that God is not a killjoy. God is good. But you have to be able to believe that. He loves you. And he's near to you. Cry out to him in your struggle and rejoice in him with the goodness of sexuality that he has given us as is described in his word. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we confess